I didn't have a poem to read, um, but Suzanne and I have been reading the Psalms together each night. We were two Psalms, she reads one and I read one, and, um, and I've been enjoying it more than I can tell you. I've gone through the Psalms before, but um, it's been special to read them. You know I believe all these things should be read aloud always, so I'm glad to hear her read them and hope she's glad to hear me read them. Um, but I've been amazed, genuinely amazed. I just want to give you a sense of why I'm going to, I'm going to, um, we did, um, she did the Lord's, or the, the, Mike, the shepherd, the, what's the song called? The, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. What is it? Yeah, 23rd Psalm, The Lord's My Shepherd. I love that song. I cannot tell you how. I think it's the, the one, the song that I most mark with the song, that are Psalms. I don't remember when I heard it as a child, but it's as if that, that first hearing of it marked it. I don't remember a song before that. And since that time, it's been one of my favorite songs. I was asked to read it at a funeral a couple of years ago. I couldn't read it without breaking up. I just love it, just dearly. I'm not going to read it this morning. I'll probably read it when we get back. Um, I'm, you know how much I love lyrics, and, and most people don't think of the Psalms as lyrics, but they are. And if you read them aloud, you'd hear it. I'm amazed at what David has done, and whatever other psalmists work with him. But um, they've just done an extraordinary... The language, the beauty... The reason I wanted to read it this morning is this. I'll just pick... I'm not going to do the 23rd Psalm, but... Um, I'm just going to quickly gloss through a couple of songs, psalms, and then make a comment. So I'm not picking them out. I'm not picking them for their relevance to Advent. I'm just arbitrarily picking a couple because I want to illustrate something that that I think is so important about our age. So I'm just off the. I'm picking arbitrarily here. Short, short song. Fifteen. O Lord, who shall sojourn? In thy tent, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his friend, or takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money, at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Just. I'm trying to find a short. First. Blessed is the man who walks in the, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You can't not know that law is the most important thing for the Jews. God's law. Um, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, the sinners nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. I probably could have picked a better one, but as I was reading through this, if, I think if you were reading the way we were, where you sustained a reading one after the other, you'd keep hearing the same thing. And what you hear is this. He's not saying, we're not going to make the end of the month, our bills, we won't have enough money, I wish I had more furniture, I wish I had a house, um, um, I want to get a new car, um, um, I'm sorry our marriage is struggling, you know. Um, there's not a thing that David says that doesn't immediately relate to God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It, he can be struggling, you know, he, um, in the, in the, after the first 15 Psalms, we know from some of the Psalms that he's praying to God because of his enemy, and his enemy is his own son. He's going to be going to war with Absalom. I mean, he, he's frightened that he's going to be run over. This is his son. We know that he's got to feel guilty about what happened with Bathsheba and her husband. You know, so there are songs where his, his grief is profound. But there's nothing, not a thing that goes on in his life that he doesn't see in relation to God. And I'm saying that because we're materialists and I don't believe we get close to seeing how much. The material world defines our existence. It's a God. I wish I had a car. I wish I had this. I wish I had this. I don't have enough of this. And it's always the material world. But how many of us see every one of those things only in relation to God? There's no other way for David to see it. Whatever, whatever, whatever joy, because there are songs of joy, whatever grief, he can't speak about it except in relationship to God. Shouldn't that be so? If God made us, if our return is to him, and we're supposed to be walking through the world with him, whatever goes on, shouldn't we be seeing it in relation to him? How many of us do? Can't make my bills today. Um, stop fussing at me. Go away. Um... Um, take the garbage out. Um, you know, I mean, whatever we say going through the day, how many of those things, how often do we carry God in the way that we deal with Him? Just, uh, so I just, I want to, we've been reading lyrics, the, the Psalms are lyrics, but as we've been going through them the last week, I, I over and over and over and over again, it just hits me over the head. You can't read David and without realizing um, there's nothing that goes on that doesn't include God. And the fact that he sees that and we don't just jumped out at me. That's how materialistic we are. We hear that time, you, we hear that take we've become such a materialistic people. Sure, because we've got all these comforts and securities and not enough security, our insurance costs are going, I mean, <laughs> where do we stop? But do we... Do we see that in terms of the creator of it all? Or does he get pushed to the back? And Anyway, beautiful psalms. You might think about reading some psalms as you go through Advent. Suzanne and I have been really enjoying them. And I particularly enjoy David. I love this man that he is um, that he's doing this. As... And, sorry. And you can't read him without feeling the beauty of his... What, a, what an extraordinary person. The beauty of his language, his use of metaphors to, to suggest other things. Um, we think, 
modern lyrics are great stuff. To look at the Psalms and watch what David does with language, it just stuns me. Anyway, sorry. So, using trying to take what you said about you know having everything in relationship to God. So, if you your property taxes go up, I'm just pulling that out of the air. Instead of getting upset and angry about it, what you do is you let it pass, you pray to God, say, I know that I'm in your hands, no matter what happens, we'll be okay. And you just pay the bill, but you don't get mad, you don't rant, you don't take it out on people. That's not what David's doing. I mean, if you want, here's my response. I feel like I'm out on a limb here, but I'll... Um, David's response would be, they've raised my taxes, that's SOBs, um, um, smash my enemies, crush them, ground them into the ground, and I hope everybody who supports them gets into the ground too. David gets angry all the time, righteously angry. I mean, you can't read the Psalms without taking on his enemies and crush them. Or, or you know that one where he says, take, take the babes of our enemies and crush their heads on the... So David's response would not be passive. I mean, there would be there are times when obviously he feels that there's not much he can do with the circumstances and ask for protection. And but um, I would make I myself would make a generalization like that. I mean, I, I can I, I I think if the government's doing something wrong, that is, if if the government has become an en- enemy and it's not responsive to us, David's response would not be pray on it and passively do nothing. David would want to go to war. I mean, you know, you can't read the Psalms without seeing him angry at his enemy and wanting to see God do something about them. So if you're asking me, I'd say David would probably say, have a house cleaning with that government, do something with these people, and he'd probably be doing what he could to answer. Even if many had to pay taxes unfairly, you know, that's a general sort of response. But how is that having God in everything that you do? Sorry? How is those kinds of words having God in, in relationship with God in everything that you do? Aren't they sort of against what God's asking you to do in the world? That that to me is a tougher question. God, oh boy, you're going to. T- I'm gonna. I want to make this short. No, 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 no. It's just, it's just, a, it's just such a difficult. My my response off the top of my head, because this in my mind is a really, really difficult question. God asks ask us to do justice, and personally, I mean, and I may be, that's why I think this is such a difficult one, that may mean going to war. I mean, we have to do battle. We, we, we may have to kill people in a war. I, I personally don't think that's going against God. I don't think that's what God wants. Um, in, the God of the Old Testament was sending the Jews into war all the time. With, with what appears to be this hateful anger at the enemies because they were living, they were worshiping other gods and he wanted to see them destroyed. That's God. So I don't see, I don't see a contradiction there. The, the difficulty is that it's clear that God wants us to work for justice even if it means going to a war and killing people because we're not asked to lay down, to lie down passively in the in the presence of an enemy, because that means other people are going to get killed. An enemy. What would happen if we hadn't stood up against Hitler? I mean, just as an example, you know, if we don't resist abortion, kids are being murdered. A Holocaust is taking place in our country right now. 
and it has the support of a law. I don't think God is saying passively resign yourself and just pray. Our, our understanding is we have we have to defeat evil, and we will be put in. Sometimes we put in situations where we might even have to. Policeman has to kill sometimes, even if he doesn't want to. At the same time, our God is different from all other gods because he didn't. Our understanding of Godhead is that if he's not a rival to other things. He's the only God. If you look at the pantheon, the Greek pantheon, gods are rivals to each other. You know, the adultery. I mean, I love those gods, but I really do. I really do. I'm not Milton. I, 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 I'm so fond of that whole Homeric world. But Christ didn't do anything. You know, when he's being persecuted, he, he was being accused of crimes he didn't commit. That whole, that justice tribunal at the end was a travesty, an absolute travesty of justice. Could have been farther away. My personal belief, my own belief is he had to do that to answer a justice or there's no meaning in the cross. He, he took our nature to a cross to answer a question of justice. Wait, I want to make this clear. Dante's going to, by the way, this is central to Dante. He's close to Milton, but there's a difference. If what happened with Dante wasn't, or God, Christ, wasn't just, then what he did was futile. It was, this is Dante's argument. It's the center of the church. If you look at the nature assumed, this is going to be Dante, we're going to come to it in Paradiso. If you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. Because he took on a fallen human nature. It had to go to a cross. Right? If you look at the nature, assume no act was more just. He, he gave his life willing to, to, to realize a justice. The cost of it? A crucifixion. So very often trying to achieve justice is painful. I mean, it's violent. If you look at the person who went to the cross, no person was acted more unjustly, treated more unjustly. That's one of the paradoxes at the center of our church. You know, so... My basic answer, I don't think there's a contradiction. You know, there are times when, and David speaking as a king, and he's the leader of a nation, he, ha he has to go to war with these other nations who, are, who want to impose their God on, on Israel. And at a time when Israel itself is um, um, leaving God, uh, it's in a state of apostasy, it's, it's taking on other gods. Solomon is going to take on other gods you know, under his rule. So that's a, just a just a just a much. It's such a complicated question. If you don't mind, I'd like to leave it there so we can go on. But I don't think David. If you read through the Psalms, he's full of grief. He's sorrow. He's full of joy. He's very often wishing the worst possible condition for his enemies. You know, so he's not one to just. There's a quality of pacifism. Joan of Arc was a saint. She wasn't passive. You know, I, sometimes I wonder if our materialistic world hasn't made us more passive, you know, too comfortable. We're not as ready to fight for justice. Um, we're, we're afraid of... And I think sometimes we're, we don't have the courage. To do it means going against so many people because people would say, look how awful that guy is. You know, um, look how bigoted or warlike or unpeaceful. You know, the modern world wants everybody to be quiet and get along. Let's start. 
sorry for that brief answer, but it's just a, your, the question you're asking is such a tough one. Couple of um, just a couple of um, um, review matters. Last week, in, um, to sum up the differences between the Protestant and Catholic worlds, I made a couple of points. Um, um, I, and I just want to go, I don't want to recover all the points because I, I thought last week was sort of amazing. I, I felt like I'd come to a clarity, a much sharper clarity on the questions than I'd had before. You remember that for the Protestant, since faith is the central thing, it, it makes a super sensible act the basis on which that person does everything. So set that against um, the faith as we understand it in the Catholic Church. There's an objective ground for it in Catholicism that the Protestant world doesn't have. The Protestant world makes an act of the will, an act of the mind, the faith in God, the basis of everything. Um, it's subjective. There's no way to test it out. There's no way to argue it. That's the nature of faith. But in the Catholic world, you've got, um, you've got an objectivity to Christ's presence. You've got it in that biblical passage in Matthew where Christ says, you are, you are Peter, and on this rock. Um, remember, it's that um, auspices taking. Christ says, who do they say I am? And Peter says, Christ. And Christ says, you know what I'm talking about when I use the auspices, the now, because I write the taking of the auspices from the ancient world. You, something, an omen, some miracle seems to happen, but because we, particularly the religious imagination, so often we can read something, and religious people who have active religious imaginations can imagine a lot of things that, that may be real or not. I mean, it's hard to test them out. Christ confirms that when he says, nobody said that, you, you got that from God. So a taking of the auspices moment, a miraculous moment, has Christ's confirmation of it. And on this rock I will build this church. And it's in that setting that he gives Peter the keys. And we talked about that. The reason for the keys, I think, I'm not a theologian, but I, I certainly believe these deeply myself. If you look at all the disorders that came out of the Reformation, that Christ is this, he's this, he's that, the Eucharist is real, it's not, you know, when you watch all of that happen and you watch a, word, a, a church begin to fall apart or you watch a church get criticized for its corruptions and then the way of dealing with those corruptions produces this wild condition you know, where people are making all of these arguments <clears throat> and saying Christ is this and he's, we're back in a mess again. If you look at the dangers the church faces, the evil that the church faces from within itself, from outside, is it any wonder that Christ gave Peter that kind of authority? Whatever you loose, it will be loosened, you know. That's an extraordinary authority. And some people may think, way out of proportion. If, from the world's perspective, it would be. But if you look at what the church faces, the dangers, temptations it faces, to me, I can't see the church dealing with it without it. Um, the question of infallibility came up a week ago. One of the um, parishioners in the evening class, who's, who happens to be Anglican, I'm really proud of her and grateful and humbled that she's here. She stayed through this when she went through the Reformation period. And I, I tried to be as careful as I could. And you know, I, I hope in trying to be, I, 
I did everything I could to avoid making judgments. What I was trying to do was put objectively what I believe are the differences between the two religions. She said, pretty much in agreement with anything except infallibility, and I, and I said the following week, and I just want to repeat it here, repeat it here. Um, that may be a stumbling block for some people. Take infallibility away on matters of dogma. What has history shown us about the dogmas of the church? Look at the early church. The, the church had all those councils where Arius claimed Christ was a man. Sibelius claimed that he was father in another mode. I mean, you can go on and on and on with these heresies. Um, the, the Catholic Church calls the Protestant world heretical. Luther's a heretic. If you look at his notion of the consubstantiation or taking away the orders, the, Luther wanted to see Catholic Church destroyed, literally. Um, take away the orders. W what's the source of authority for a church? Well, we saw it with the Reformation. For, for Luther, for Wycliffe, for um, Calvin, the source of authority was the congregation. It seemed very, very democratic. Well, if the congregation mix turns out at some period to favor one thing over another, then you've got a majority rule as the source of authority, and who knows what would come out of that? Gay marriages, women priests, I mean, these are all the, these are all the presumably, um, the words of God, the authority of God. The Catholic Church says, no, no, that can't decide. There's an objective truth, there is an object, objectivity to Christ in the Eucharist, in the Pope, in the Church itself. So there's an objective ground. Take away infallibility, what will happen on matters of dogma? It'll be up for grabs. So um, we just, we went over, you know, so many of these fundamental things that most of us take for granted that are still with us in the modern world. These still, the, the, the arguments that swirl around these things are just as much present now as they were then. The one thing that I wanted to just underscore today is this notion of the universality of the Catholic faith. And I'll put it this way, I'm just repeating myself, but it, I believe it, 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 it gives us precisely the principle at issue here. Purity of spirit, purity of spirit, I'll say it again, purity of spirit cannot be racial, national, sexual, cannot, that's from Christ, cannot, the spirit cannot be Greek, Orthodox, Serbian, it can't be Anglican, because every time you, you qualify the faith in one of those ways, it always makes an accommodation to the world, we've seen that again and again and again. The Greek Orthodox will make the Greeks more important than the Serbians. That's going to affect the way they treat each other. Several weeks ago, there was this example of what, jo Joseph, Joseph Hatt, who he was in that Polish area trying to convince one of those ethnic groups. I can't let it be the Czechs. I can't remember, but the Czechs hated the Hungarians. I don't remember what the races were, and he was trying to persuade. Um, one of those ethnic groups to come into the Catholic Church, and I think lots of them were ready to do that. One of the bishops found out 
and had him killed. We celebrated his martyrdom. Because racial, you know this from our own life, racial identity can become so fierce that it gets in the way of loving the way Christ asks us to do. Same, same thing with Anglican. I read that thing from the flyer, if you go back and, or no, no, one of my notes, where the, where the Anglican priest said, um, you can't believe in the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. Those are an, anachronisms. Anybody who believes those things is living superstitiously in an ancient world. The tendency in all those movements, when they gather power, political power, is, is to move in what I call in the direction of the sign. The, the, the mind wanting to reduce things to reason. So the miraculous, the sacramental, goes. So it can't be racial, it can't be national, it can't be sexual. When women start enabling women, and men start enabling men, you're letting your sex get in the way. Paul says there are no men and women anymore. We're supposed to love each other. It doesn't matter if somebody's a man and you're a woman and your inclination as a woman is to hate all men any more than it is if you're a man hating women because you hate all women. We're supposed to get... We, we can't allow our sex to keep us from loving the way Christ did. None of those things can get in the way. So it defines Catholicism as the uni universality. It, it, it represents God in the world offering his son to save everybody, irrespective of their race, their nation, their sex. <coughs> Purity of spirit can't be any of those things. So the one mark, I mean, there's, <laughs> we've gone through a lot of them, but the defining mark of Catholicism is its universality. It stands as God. I think I gave you that example when just after Suzanne and I converted, and I went to this friend of mine who was the head of the art department, because to, to, for me to leave the Greek Orthodox community meant really leaving my past, because you can't, you can't be Catholic in the Greek Orthodox world. <laughs> to be Greek Orthodox, you have to be Greek. Your Greek has to be your defining quality. And I remember, I'll never forget David's answer. He said, it's a little bit like, I think I've given you this story before, haven't I? He said, it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges. For him, it was two different things. And, and it blew me away, because I'd already made the conversion, but I had never seen that. I couldn't answer it. For him, faith was a higher thing than your race. You can't confuse them. And yet they get confused all the time. So the Catholic's in a special and a vulnerable position. It means he has to stand in the world exactly where the world defines itself by other loyalties. It's going to put him at risk. The likelihood is if he stands up for it, he's going to be persecuted. Because most everybody else will identify with a race, or a nation, or a sex. Look at the modern Me Too, or I Too, or whatever that, you know, that feminist, I can't. Um, we're always at risk. People hide in groups. They hide in groups. We're asked not to, to stand up, which means we're vulnerable to group, to groupthink. Because people are going to look at us and say, bigoted, prejudiced, superstitious, anachronistic, you know. So, um, just briefly, I, we've mentioned this now, I mentioned it a, a number of times. Remember, Dante is born, in, I think, in the very same year that Florence is 
founded as a burger republic, the first commercial republic. Now remember, this is so important, so important. The, the, the defender of freedom in the world from the very beginning has been the West. It's the great living, inspiring principle of the Western civilization, freedom. Um, the two greatest regimes of the ancient world were Athens and Rome. And they were both dedicated to a new kind of government. Because if you look in the East everywhere, the, the governments are tribal or dynastic or priestly, where a priestly class governs Egypt, China, emperors of God. Um, Greece came, it, it's, it's just an amazing advent of something extraordinary. Greece comes into the world believing that all men are equal and should be treated equally. They, they go to war with Persia again and again. Rome dedicated itself to freedom as well. It was a republic. The difference was Rome is very individual. Greece was very individualistic. Rome had a sense of the common good, the common man. So it was a republic and a democracy. Those two forms of government have been carried forward as defining forms of government in the West. They, they, are, they are what has defined our development as a civilization. Why do people keep wanting to come to the West? For those reasons. Um, sorry. Um, so those forms of government have come forward. When England comes into existence under in Shakespeare's time in the Renaissance, it, it self-consciously sees itself in terms of the Davidic way, Jerusalem. The way of Athens, the way of Rome. Those were defining paradigms for, for thoughtful people during the, rest, the, the uh, Renaissance. Yeah? The Davidic way, the way of Jerusalem, the way of David, the way of Greece, the way of Rome. When they, when they thought about themselves politi politi politically, they thought of themselves in that way. So democracy, republic are not new terms during the Renaissance or during Dante's time. But a commercial regime is because it defines itself by, by its commercial prosperity. Its ability to risk on financial matters in order to get ahead, to have a better life for yourself. So the advent of that kind of regime represents a, a radical change from medieval history, because you know in the medieval world, the world was largely feudal. You had the Holy Roman Empire and you had the church. Those were the two sources of power. And it was a feudal world. Into this feudal world comes this burger republic, this commercial republic. Okay, Dante's born in the same year that Florence is founded in that way. And so he's in, in a position of seeing the nature of it in a way that we're not because we take it for granted. And you'll see why Dante couldn't take it for granted when we get here because, um, because of the nature of the struggle that was going on between church and state. But it's important to see that because in that sense, um, the Divine Comedy is one of the most prophetic works we've ever written, written, read. And you know that I'm including the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Shakespeare, when we did Merchant of Venice or Othello, or, or Moby Dick, or Faulkner. Um, he was prophetic because that, that was a new regime. It was different from any other regime that had ever existed before because it came out from underneath the power of the emperor, on one side, and it came out from underneath the influence of the Pope. It stood independently on its own. Where's that going? America, First Amendment. Freedom, um, state can impose a religious belief on us. 
that, 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 there's a direct line from our First Amendment to Florence. I can't put it any, any stronger than that. So Dante's prophetic, when you read the Divine Comedy, you're, you're, there's no way you're not going to see us. And what he shows us again and again and again, the driving forces of the Persian regime, pride, envy. Both of which lead to violence and murder. There's not going to be, <laughs> there's not going to be very much good to say about the commercial regime um, because he's going to expose it scene after scene after scene after scene. People want to get ahead. That means stepping over other people. It means killing them, getting out of the way. If somebody has something that I don't have, I want them to lose it. I want to get it. I'm assuming that doesn't sound strange to most of it. I want my money. I want to live a secure life. So, remember, the prophets from the beginning weren't prophetic because they told the future. They were prophetic because they showed us things we didn't want to see. And we'll learn as we get into the Paradiso that Dante, acts like, like Aeneas, Aeneas, when he goes into the underworld, is given his calling. When Dante gets up into the Paradiso, he's going to be given his calling. His calling will be you have to come back and tell the truth of all the things you've seen. Whether, whether people like it or whether they will like you or not. Two more things about this prophetic quality. You know in the beginning here, when Virgil comes to him and says, you have to go down, Virgil's going to take Dante into the afterlife. It's a voyage into the afterlife. Okay? And he refers to two people who've done the same thing, Aeneas and Paul. Aeneas had to go down into the underworld, those of you who've done the Aeneid remember, and it's only in the underworld that he gets his um, calling from his father. The father says, this is what you have to do to go on to found Rome. And you know that Paul has that vision in the third heaven, comes back to say, he, in fact, it was in the reading, he who has eyes, um, let him hear, um, sorry, I have not seen, ear hath not heard. Paul's seen that heaven. Dante's going into the afterlife because he will see the final ends of things. N nobody will ever be able to show us the full implications of our actions here if we don't see their full their consequences. Is that clear? I can't. That has, that's it's one of the most profound things to see about the whole commedia. He goes into the afterlife because he wants to show us the real nature of our sins. This is what they are. This is what their final form. How can we know them if we don't see what they become? That's why I gave the example last week of Dante being a good doctor. If you see the symptoms, if he reasons from effects to causes, and you look at the effects and the doctor says, here's the effects, if he, if he sees them clearly, we know doctors make mistakes all the time. If he sees them clearly, he can look at their causes. If that's a sin, and we see it more clearly, we know what to do. Why does Virgil come to, to get him? Because he has, Dante has to see those sins if he's going to change them. He can't climb up that hill till he learns to see what's in the way. Okay? Is that clear? This is so important. So Dante's showing us the final ends. There's nothing more prophetic than that. How many of us see the real nature of our sins and are willing to take them on? 
So Dante's our guide. He's going to take us there. And you remember what Dante's response is when, um, when Virgil says you have to go down and, and Dante says Paul did it and Aeneas did it, but I'm not a Paul or an Aeneas. <laughs> Virgil says, stop whining, you coward. <laughs> You're going in. It's a little bit like Moses when Moses said, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to do this. Which, which, by the way, is a good indication that that's exactly why Dante should do it. It's the, it's, the people, it's the people who say, I'm not good enough to do it, who are usually better than the ones who think they're good enough, because the ones who think they're good enough are usually arrogant. And, you know, so, anyway, that's one of the funny um, pieces of humor in the early part of the book there. Last thing. Um, um, and you'll see this in a second, but I want to just mention it now. I'll probably mention it again in a minute. You know that Dante writes the Divine Comedy um, after his exile from Florence, which I think is in 303 or 1304, 1303. Dante writes the Commedia. Um, um, Sometime around 13, let's say 1315, I can't remember the exact dates, but roughly somewhere in there. He's born in 1265 and he dies in 1321. Um, he's writing the Commedia late in his life. Do you remember when Wycliffe lived? I should have given you guys a quiz. Should have given you guys a quiz. I'm obviously not being mean enough because I was a really mean teacher. <laughs> kids, kids had, kids had quizzes all the time. Because I, I knew if they had a quiz, they'd hold on to it. But what would you do if we all flunked out? <laughs> What's the curve? <laughs> <laughs> the curve, right? The curve would go way down. <laughs> Right. Good. Stop and think about this. The Babylonian captivity was 1305, 1375. Dante was aware of it. Early, early stages of the Babylonian captivity when it had been moved to Avignon in France. Dante knew exactly what was going on. Popes filled hell. Dante's not naive. He's not a blind Christian. He put the greater number of people in hell are Catholics. There was no Protestant Reformation then, um, so but they're large, it's largely filled with Catholic. A lot of popes, a lot of popes. Um, this is during the Babylonian captivity at the height of corruption. I mean, the corruptions are so massive. We we ended up having two seats of power, two popes at the same time. Um, imagine that in our day, and how many people would leave the church? Sadly. Um, Dante wrote during the Babylonian captivity. Wycliffe was writing that he's called, the, remember, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. There wasn't, and I said this when we were doing it, there wasn't anything that um, Luther saw or did that Wycliffe already hadn't. He was critical of the same thing, looked at the Eucharist in the same way, wanted to see the monasteries destroyed. He thought there should be no priests unless they were absolutely poor. Luther wanted the priesthood taken away. And Luther comes 
200 years after Wycliffe, 200 years, two centuries. So what we're looking at here is in some ways so like what the Reformation people were thinking. So like, the corruptions are so identical, the, the corruption, simony is a serious concern, when I give the background in a second, the selling of church properties, the corruptions that came out of that. So Dante's aware of all that, um, all the corruptions that Luther and Wycliffe and Calvin faced are already here, and so many of them are of the same nature. So for me, it just underscores the prophetic character of this book. He's looking very truthfully at our world, the commercial regime, and corruptions in the church. Okay? Now let me just, let me take a look at the historical background very quickly. I can do this quickly. Um, and by the way, before I start, you remember that I gave you this thumbnail, History of the Church, it's just, I think it's a couple pages. Um, it's just, it's a good, it's, a, it's really a good thumbnail description. Um, I've got another um, packet, another brief history. This one's 14 pages. It's, it's more thorough, it covers more. I didn't run it off because it's a lot to read um, and I want to be careful of printing costs. But it, it's for any, in, any of you who might be interested in looking more carefully at this period of church history, I'll be glad to run it off. Um, I'm not going to run off any for the class because I don't know that anybody's going to read it. But if you, if you think you'd be interested, let me know and next time we meet I'll have some runoff and you can have one. But let me know before you leave today, if you do want one, so I know how many to run off. Otherwise, I'm not going to run you. It's the same thing. It's it's a brief history, oh. church history. It's really about this church-state conflict because because <coughs> this is where the issues between church and state get clarified, and I believe this is where the church finally sorts <coughs> itself out and separates itself out from the state. And it, it, by the way, that's one of the factors leading to the modern commercial regime. It's independence from, from the, Florence's independence from either the emperor or the church. A remarkable thing is happening in this time. The church is separating itself out from imperial powers. It's produced this new way, it is, it is one of the influences producing the Renaissance, the flowering of art, music, new forms of government. It's all here. This is where, this is where the modern world Modern world doesn't begin in the Reformation. The modern world begins here in the in the Renaissance. So, just very briefly, if I can cover just a, a couple of um, events um, in these three stages to to try to pinpoint what's going on. If you take out that brief thumbnail packet, you'll see at the top all those passages from the Bible. Render to Caesar, my king is not of this world. I'll give thee the keys of the kingdom. There is no power but from God. Um, but they said, Lord, here are two swords. The assumption from the very beginning is that there were two powers. St. Augustine said that. So many of the church fathers said it. Um, in the very first paragraph, in his letter to Emperor Anastasius, um, Gelasius writes, 
Two there are by which this world is chiefly ruled, the sacred authority of the priesthood. And notice that it's sacred. This is not a democracy. It's a sacred order. It's sacramental. Um, it's, the it's the beginning of the apostolic succession. The sacred authority of the priesthood and the royal power. Of these, the responsibility of priests is more weighty. That's why the church is so upset when a priest... Um, abuses his office, what priests can do with their offices, it's a far greater sin. Of these, the responsibility of priests is more weighty. These terms, auctoritas, um, potestas, inherent authority and mere power define the conflict following Rome's decline. So there are these two powers. When Christ says, give unto Caesar, give under God, um, the, the one to God is higher because it has to do with the ultimate salvation of a soul. All of us are going to die. People, um, Caesar rules over a body in which all men are going to come to an end. I want to underscore that, okay? Caesar rules over a body in which all people come to an end. You have to take that into account in the way you rule, if that's your rule. God, Christ, rule over a body that will never come to an end. So the authority, the power is far greater, heavier. Let me put that differently right now. That means the temptation on the part of the church is to interfere in political powers because it's got a greater concern for men. Yeah? And what the church learned, I mean one of the great realizations of the church over time was that it had to separate itself out because it would overstep its, the limits of its authority otherwise, which is exactly what happened. So the first phase, um, the what, we, what can be called the imperial papacy, when the, when the Germanic tribes were coming down and conquering Rome, it was the Pope that stepped out to negotiate the treaty. So in a sense, what happened is that he became the de facto ruler of Rome. So when, as, during the period of Rome's collapse, the papacy becomes embroiled in political affairs, in one sense, claims its power. What contributed partly to that is when Constantine made Christianity official um, and identified with it. If you know anything about that period, if I remember correctly, um, Constantine was actually Arian. It was the popular religion. Uh, I think it was Anastasius who, um, who went against him you know, um, to show that Christ, that Christ was not Arian. But that was a popular movement and it had the support of Constantine. But Christianity became official, which meant it became identified with state powers. So a number of things are happening to bring those two powers together. Incestuously, let me put it that way. Wrongly. Um, on Christmas Day 800, Pope Leo crowned Charlemagne Emperor of the West, establishing beyond any doubt the sovereignty of the Church over the state. Second phase. Um, during the second phase, because the Church and state are embroiled in so many affairs, all of the popes become lawyers, and they produce these decrees attempting to define limits between the two powers. So during that period, all of the popes are lawyers, and they're taking on legal matters. And it's, out, it's in this period that canon law, these great massive books, come into existence. 
they established the importance of law for the church. Um, the third phase, um, if, if you know your history a little bit, you know that the Middle Ages were largely platonic. That um, Plato's works get passed on to the through the West. Um, Augustine is Platonist. You can see it in his thinking, very Platonist. Aristotle's lost to the West, but the but he his works were recovered in the East by the Islamic people, um, Eastern people, and around the I think it's I can't, I'm losing my history here, but but I think between say the ninth and twelfth centuries, a lot of Arab and Jewish thinkers are taken by Aristotle's works because they're amazed by the logic. I mean, what he says is so reasonable. If you've ever read Aristotle, you know it's just hard to argue with him. He's just, he's so, he's so profound and commonsensical. They're so taken by his truths that they come up with this notion of what they call the two truths. That there's a truth for religion and a truth for philosophy. They couldn't reconcile. This is so important. They couldn't reconcile them. The church was upset with them and looked at Aristotle as a heresy, the really good philosophers who were Islam um, couldn't break from their faith, but they had no way of reconciling them. So they said that they were two truths. Now you can imagine how upset the, the established people would be because to say that means you're, under, you're, under, you're um, undermining religion in some way. Who reconciled them? St. Thomas. Because it's during that period that Aristotle comes back to the West, goes to Alfred in the universities, um, Alfred is the great teacher, if I think, I think Dominic and Alfred, I think, are Thomas, Thomas is a great teacher. And what Thomas does with Aristotle is extraordinary. And, and the, the first, um, one of the effects of his learning after he began to produce this stuff was that the church looked at him as a heretic. He went to battle with Bonaventure, who was a Platonist, because Aristotle's ideas were so radical, so radically different. He's the central church, the father of the church. I mean, insofar as we give the intellect any importance at all. Um, up until that time, and by the way, it's the Jewish, Maimonides, Averroes, some others that I, I, my memory's going, they were the major Jewish Islamic thinkers who had produced all of this work. St. Thomas engages them as well. There's nobody who lived in the world that he did not engage in his works. Islamic thinkers, Jewish thinkers, pagan philosophers, all of them. When you read his works, you see him assimilating this great body of work and trying to bring it to um, its clarity. So he's the one who really makes it possible to reconcile philosophy with religion. And Dante's going to make a lot of that, and Shakespeare will make a lot of it. Shakespeare, Shakespeare in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, um, Shakespeare has the, these mechanics, the fools, put on a play, and the play that they put on has to do with these um, Egyptian lovers, or Babylonian lovers. And um, who, Cyrus, I can't remember who their leader was, it wasn't. But the lovers die, and the king dies of Babylon. The, the ruler in Athens, because this place set in Athens, is Theseus. And what happens in Athens 
is what doesn't happen in the, in the East in Babylonia. Because what doesn't happen in the East is that love and law, love and law, do not come together. In the West, they do. What Shakespeare's dealing with in Midsummer Night's Dream is a refounding. Because it's, it's the great achievement of the West to bring love and law, reason and passion together in the way that the rest of the world has never done. And interestingly, you'd be interested in this, the means of doing that, if you look at, you have to read, I mean, we may have to do Midsummer Night's Dream together, but the, the means of doing that? Poetry. I just said that. <laughs> it's what Oberon, who's a poet figure in the, in the forest, does with the lovers. Think about how hard it is to, we've been talking about this, think about how hard it is to bring reason and love together. Was that before or after the Merchant of Venice? Wow. Because that's kind of what the Merchant of Venice is about too. Yeah, yes, you're right on. I mean, you're right on. I think, I think um, Mr. Mm-hmm. Night's Dream comes before, I'm so glad you said that. And the fact that you saw it, because it's true. Um, Pyramus, not Pyramus, um, Bottom, one of the clowns in the in the midst says, as he put it, love and law don't go very well together. Shakespeare knows that because that's what the play is about. We've talked about it. it's much easier to enforce a law, blank. It's much easier to love, to be compassionate, ignore the law. The great debate over the walls, destroy love in favor of compassion, a disaster. Um, ignore love and enforce law, you've got a Jewish legalism self-righteous, try to bring the two together. Shakespeare's belief, Dante's belief, Aristotle, or Thomas, was the the fundamental thing, the fundamental task for all of us is to bring those two things together because when we fall off on one side or the other, we are in trouble. And I'm trusting everybody here is old enough to know that. (laughs) Here's a... I'm going to get hung for this. <laughs> I'm going to get in real trouble for this one. Allowing, allowing that there are radical differences and that this is a simplistic, simplistic generalization. I would say that generally speaking, most men live by law and most men, women live by emotions and love. And the difficulties that go on in marriage center. I, I'm seeing some nods good. Maybe I'll escape today. But imagine, here, imagine how difficult that is given the sexual differences. When that's a marriage means bring those two things together. Because if you don't, we all know. It's just a mess. God, I escaped. Oh my God. That we continue to go home together is great. <laughs> you use reason, she uses love. I hope by this point in our life, and I think I can safely, I think we're both bringing both of them together better than we did 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> not going there. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. Or we wouldn't be here. Okay, just very quick. Here, quickly, I want to read. I want everybody to just pay attention to this for a second to finish this overview. 
Um, what page were you passing through the page? No, this is my, this is that longer copy, oh, I'm gonna, and I'm going to read from it. Always beneath the surface of these conflicts between church and state were questions of authority. What was the proper relationship between church and state? What were the separate distinct powers, their distinct ends, because they're different for each? Caesar's got our well-being here on earth. Christ got our ultimate end, holiness. Um, the problem came to a head over a question of having to do with the nature of royal authority. Feudal kings were anointed with elaborate religious ceremonies, receiving consecration similar to those of bishops. Like bishops, they were seen as vicars or ministers of God. It was essential for maintaining order. The kings controlled their estates. The nobles and kings held their lands and jurisdictions by hereditary right. As a result, they could do no wrong. Accordingly, the custom throughout Europe was for kings to choose bishops to invest them with the ring and pastoral staff, symbolizing pastoral offices, and then support them with sizable, often wealthy fiefs. Given the nature of kingship, these acts carried the weight of sanctions and became ways for the people. Bishops were given property. They could sell them. Um, and once that happens, once a bishop gets comfortable with his living style, who's he going to serve, the king or the pope? What, it's just such an embarrassing scene for me to watch. I mean, my stomach turned. When, remember when we were doing Men for All Season? And the bishops came in so that the court could receive their decision on what they were going to do? That's an entire body of bishops. We saw them. That whole hall was filled with bishops. They caved in. Um, the, the take on the American bishops 20 years ago in America was that they're all left-wing liberals. They're all part of a Marxist um, liberation theology way of, you know, that they'd all gone left. So think what happens when bishops begin to align themselves too much with political powers. In this case, during this, they're, they're investing, the kings are investing bishops. They can choose them. At this point, kings or emperors are choosing popes. So the, at this point, the church is absolutely embroiled in things. And as I said a minute ago, if they're giving bishops property to take care of them, and bishops can sell them and have mistresses or wives, they're becoming more and more a part of the political order and they're becoming more loyal to the king because they're taking king's taking care of them. So at this point in the history of the church, the church is coming very corrupt. And remember, this is Wycliffe's period. And this is what Luther objected to. So, and his answer was, Mary, you know, kill out the church, the orders. I mean, his answer was get rid of the priest. The debate, the problem comes to a head between two men, they're, they're cardinals, Peter Damien and Humpert. The two men by temperament were very different, and the debate that developed between them uncovered issues that had implications as serious property rights, apostolic succession, future relations between Greek and Roman churches. God, this is... Damien argued that although a seminist was a bad bishop, he nevertheless still a bishop. Humpert maintained that the sin of simony was so heinous that a bishop who paid to obtain his office was ipso facto not a true bishop. Now we've heard, I think, I'm not sure when the Donatist um, heresy came up, but the Donatist heresy claim was that if a priest committed a, a sin, 
it invalidated what he did with the sacraments. I think, in fact, it had to be in there because I think even Saint Augustine um, argued against this, and you know that's fourth, fifth century, so it was already there then. Does the fact that a priest commit a sin invalidate what he does and the church is maintained forever? No, because it knows no priest is without sin. The church would disappear. But this became a part of the major, an impetus for the reform movements that began at that time. And two major things came out of it. One, one of them, the investiture conflict, where the Pope wrote a bull saying that they could only be invested within the church. The king did not have power to do that. The second was the College of Bishops was created during this period to make sure that whoever was elected Pope would come from the, within the church. That none of these matters could be decided by the secular power. So what we're watching gradually is the state separating itself, the church separating itself out from the state. So it's a major development in the direction of what I, I keep going to America because that's where we are and we've got the First Amendment, you know, the, um, the, uh, in our Constitution. Um, one last thing. Early on in this period, there were two families, dynastic families in Germany, making claims on the imperial crown. Um, both of them had claims. One of them had a long-standing claim in Germany. The two families were called the Hofenstaufens and the Welfs, and they went to war. Um, when Frederick II comes into the picture, he wants to, he wants to um, conquer Rome and unify North and South Rome because he knows whoever does that has control, imperial power over the West in Europe. Um, the church constantly turned to France for help. That's why it eventually goes there with, with Philip for the wrong reasons. But, but what happens when Frederick attacks Italy, the Lombards in the North, um, the, the Italians become involved in that war, separated because of their loyalties. Part of the groups owe their loyalty to the imperial um, power, the emperor, and part owes identifying with the church. So the, what, took, what began as a war between those two dynastic families, the Houghton-Stoutons and the Welfs, end up taking that same form in Italy, in northern Italy, but it's, the names are changed. The names become Ghibellines and Guelphs. Um, now this is really important because what happens then is that people siding on the side of the state or the church go to war killing each other. Dante's, the, we, we come across this all the time, all that mentions, allusions to it all the time, early on in the book. Um, the, Florent, the Florentines expelled, exiled the Ghibellines from their city. The Ghibellines came back and exiled the Guelphs. They just went back and forth. You'll hear Dante say that in, in the book when he talks with one of, the, one of the people. What happens when the Guelphs take control in Florence at one point is because of this new thinking that's taking place, that uh, there's a Platonic Academy, an Aristotelian, an Aristotle, these learning centers, new forms of government are beginning to form, emerge. So, and they do it on this basis, and this is one of the reasons this third stage is so important when Aristotle comes into the picture. Plato believed that the city was principally 
um, punitive because he believed that the body was not a good thing. The body was a prison house. So for him, laws were important as a way of punishing something depraved in man. And hold on, remember this. The, the Reformation, Protestant world, tends to be platonic. It's its root for reasons we went over in Milton. You know, where do you start with the, the, the unknowable things or with the common thing? But also because of a basic belief in the, in the depravity of the body. Plato believed the body was a prison house. It was not a good thing. Aristotle couldn't have differed with him more radically. He believed the body was a good thing and that the city was not punitive. It, it was necessary for man to achieve his potential end. Now hold on to that. That's so important. Following Aristotle, St. Thomas argued that civil society... This is following Aristotle. This is Thomas's thinking. And Thomas is coming in at this time. Dante's thinking rests on Thomas. Following Aristotle, Thomas argued that civil society didn't result from a need to punish man, but from man's inherent rational nature. Man is a political animal because he can learn. We need each other to learn. Um, Milton talks about Adam as being isolated. Dante tries to go up the mountain on his own and finds out he can't. He can't do it without help. Who comes to him, Virgil, and almost more importantly, the entire tradition that Virgil carries in himself. So nobody understands more than Dante that we, that we can never grow into who we potentially can become, who God gave us, without the help of others. Um... Man's a political animal because he can learn. We need other people. He's endowed with a reason and certain potentialities, and these can only be developed in a cooperative work within a community. The political community is essential to man because it assists him in perfecting his nature. There is no real authority then, whether human or divine, apart from what is intrinsically good and rational. All over Europe, new ways of thinking encourage claims to independence from both imperial and ecclesiastical authority. Out of the tensions um, emerged these republics. This is crucial at this point. Remember, the, the Gelfs had expelled the Ghibellines. The Gelfs are there. Now there's a problem because the issue, the Gelfs, remember, identified with the Pope. Because the Gelfs now are facing this issue. Part of them are identifying with the Pope, Part of them are identifying with this new sense of a regime, the intrinsic good of a community that, that should be independent of both church and state so that when, me, when men make their decisions, they make them freely, not because they're forced to, because they inherited those beliefs. And Dante is a strict defender of freedom. He believes that the, the Gelf, that Florence should be free from either power. Um, so I hope that's clear. So a, a radical conflict, a change is taking place at this moment. It's defining a new way of standing in the world. Prior to this, you knew that any Catholic growing up would become Catholic. No choice. Catholics were not reflective. There was no other option. The other option was Islam, and Islam was blasphemous. It was heretical. Islam denied the divinity of Christ and denied the Trinity. Um, so the wars over you know, during that period were um, wars about real issues. 
So at this time, something entirely new is entering the world. Man stands with a kind of existential freedom that he'd not known before. It, it, it presents him with real choices. What happens doesn't happen because it was determined. What happens more and more is now a matter of choice, that, that man has to contemplate, reflect on the choices that he makes, why, the implications of them. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. This is so important. Okay? So that's the historical background. And you know from what we've seen, the, the, the backdrop of this new condition, this, this commercial republic that's coming into existence, the backdrop is a corrupt church. Babylonian captivity, simony, bishops who are more answerable to a king than a pope, uh, corrupt, and the Borgias in Italy, if you know anything about the corruption, you know it's through the roof. The Borgias have mistresses, wealth through the roof. Um, Venice has become one of the commercial centers, Merchant of Venice, you know, that it's full of wealth and um, very renaissance in its outlook, art, beauty, music. Shakespeare, I should, I'm thinking more and more, I'm thinking, we, after this, I may change, I've <laughs> been thinking very seriously about picking up Chaucer, Donnie, or I mean, uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, when we finish this, to go back to the literature, and then do several more Shakespeare. <laughs> um, I'll talk to you later. You guys may be... <coughs> Just one more question. Was there another battle going on among those two groups as well, or the, the nature of the soul, or, or it's... Its existence. I think I'm not sure what you're. I know the well, Abba, I, I the Abba was also between those two groups and, and the black and the white, the Gels and the Ghibellines, the Gels and the Ghibellines. Yeah, and, and I thought the Gels, which Dante was a member of, right, right, also believed that there was a body and a soul, right. And the other group, the Gellians, I, I thought they didn't believe that. No, that they, they no. believe that. No, no. Here, let me straighten. Let me, but I, I, I may be mistaken. I, and let me say it because it's maybe where you're getting this. Most of the people, most, this is a generalization. Most of the people, wait, let me get clear. Gels and Ghibellines, right? Go back to those two Germanic powers laying claim to the imperial throne. The, the Gels to the papacy. They're going to war. They are, for the most part, Catholics because it was a Catholic world by and large. But clearly they would have been temperamentally different in one sense because one was looking to a temporal power, the other was looking to a religious power. Um, so I, I'm not, you may be right more than I know, my, my, from my little reading, I'm aware that Catholics make up a large part of both of those groups. Um, yeah, they do. Be, because the, even the Ghibellines wanting power, um, um, are a part of a tradition in which um, emperors crown popes. So the religious beliefs have always been, it's the Holy Roman Empire, it's, it's Christian. Um, what you're going to find when we come to the circle of hell with Fernanda is a Ghibelline who was um, Epicurean. Who, 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 I, mean, I thought it was the Epicureans that, that did not believe in the soul. Right, that's why I'm going there, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So um, Fernanda is Epicurean. But I don't think you can generalize out on that and say that the Ghibellines as a party were didn't believe in the soul. But in this one instance, you have a man who was Epicurean, who didn't believe in the soul, who was Ghibelline. 
Anyway, that's the background. That's that's the background of the commedia, it's, and it's important to see that there are multiple levels of meaning there. Um, Dante's time frame, you know, is um, um, the journey takes place during Easter tide in um, 1300, um, and it's interesting because over and over and over again, we we are placed in time because of the prophecies that he hears from people. So even if he doesn't give us explicit dates, they date the story in relation. Because, for instance, Farinata, the guy that I think, I'm not sure if Jeff or yeah, Fred, if it... Yeah, because it was in the heretic. Yeah, right. Farinata will talk about an actual event that can be historically dated. So we have ways in the poem of knowing when it took place. It goes from Monday, Thursday, through Thursday of the next week. The, the important moment to remember is that when Dante and Virgil emerge from hell and arrive on the gates of, or I mean on the shores of purgatory, that's Easter Sunday morning. So on an allegorical level, we're to understand this is a journey of conversion. It's a journey of the soul. And that in some sense, it applies to everybody. This is a, a, a conversion story, journey. Dante's method, the allegorical method, um, Dante's allegorical method. This is so important. And by the way, once again, Thomas, I'm right here. Dante would have gotten this from St. Thomas. If you look at the Summa Theologica in the opening chapters, Dante Thomas talks about language and method of understanding. And he speaks about this four level of meaning to things. Okay? For, for Dante following St. Thomas and the mid, Middle Ages, they would have said this. Every event in life has four levels of meaning. Absolutely every, this moment right now that we're in has the same meaning. Every event has four meanings. There's the literal level. Literal. Don't you have that on the back of the board? Sorry? And there's the allegorical. Okay? Literally is obviously what literally takes what's empirically here, what's present to our senses. That's the literal level. The allegorical level has four levels itself. The first one is called the allegorical. The second is called the tropological. And the third is called anagogical. Now take this very, very seriously because it's, a, it's, it's important to see if we're going to understand what's going on because every single event in the Commedia has four levels and Dante knows that and he's working with it. He's working with it. Um, now what do these mean? The literal level, by the way, I think the example that St. Thomas gives and Dante, Dante writes a, a, a little piece on it in which he talks about the method. Um, the, the example is given of, of um, the Jews coming out of Egypt. When the Jews came out of Egypt, 
um, they, they illustrated these four levels. That what they were doing was leaving an old way of life, entering a new way of life that was um, closer morally to Christ and that was leading to their salvation. So that one event, when they were leaving Egypt, could be explained in terms of these four levels. Okay? So remember that. Leading an old way of life into a new, there was a moral aspect to it. They were becoming better people. They ought to have done that. And they were leading towards their salvation. Everything they're doing is moving them closer to God. So you've got the literal level. Um, and, and remember this before anything. There's no way to get to these three levels. None. None except through the literal. Think about the importance of this for reading Milton, because I tried to emphasize where does Milton start? Does he start with what literally is knowable, or does he start with things we can't know? The importance of angelic knowledge for Milton, and the importance of ordinary things for us, whether it's the wind hover, a bird, a four-year-old girl pricking herself, you know, the things we've been talking about. Um, the literal, all of these only exist here. To get to these, you have to start, you have to bend down to what's before us. So, um, literally, what's going on in this moment in class right now, literally we're together. The allegorical has to do with passing from an old way of life to a new. That's what allegory means. To pass from an old way to a new. So with respect to this class, are we, are we together leaving an old way behind, entering on a new path? That's what that means. That's, and I believe that is a... Is that the better reader part? What? Sorry? I mean, the allegorical part. Is that becoming a better reader? I, would, I mean, I'm glad you said that. I mean, I would hope so, because I'm not sure we could do it if we weren't. But I mean, is that kind of you, as you go through the process? Okay, we're together. That's the literal. Yeah. The objective is to become a better reader. Is that the allegory? Wait, hold on, hold on. L let me just leave it old and new right now. But I, I mean, I'm glad for the way you put it because you, you know, my own belief is that we can't do that if we don't read better than we do. But leaving an old way of life behind, entering a new way. That's the allegorical level. The tropological is the moral. Whether we ought to do something. So, in what we're doing together, um, does what we're doing together carry an ought component to it? Is there something we ought to do by virtue of what we're doing together? Becoming a better reader, I would hope, you know, but, but it, it's the moral quality of what goes on in the moment. The anagogical has to do with salvation. Whether what we're doing is bringing us farther away or closer to Christ. Is it taking us closer to him or pushing us farther away? So every single event in life, not, not a one, escapes. All of them carry this meaning, according to Dante, according to Thomas. Another way of thinking about this is this. This is, you can call this a horizontal and a vertical way of reading. The horizontal is at the literal level that we go through life, but it also includes a vertical um, compass, a orientation. And I would say, this is a generalization, but I'd say in the modern world, <coughs> remember the advent of the sign, the advent of the sign, 
We reduce everything to a kind of empirical reason, mathematical quantitative reason. We've lost our sense of vertical thinking, that is, thinking in terms of analogies, different levels of meaning. Think about the wind hover. Remember a bird, and when he buckled, for Hopkins that was his way of showing the crucifix was present and what it meant in a bird or a fire or a farmer plowing. And think about the supernatural love, the little four-year-old girl who pricked herself. On the literal, I mean, most people would say on a little rub, she just picked, pricked herself. When you put all the details of that poem together, there's no way you can see that except as a participation in the cross. Her nails, daddy, daddy, the crying out, the calling of a poet, the importance of words, you know. There's so much going on in that poem. If we just do the literal level and we don't put it all together, we miss it. We just miss. So this is Dante's method. Um, one last thing. What's the nature of hell? What is hell? Remember, Dante wanted to climb this mountain. He had these three beasts. There's some dispute about what the beasts mean, um, but um, the leopard, the lion, she will remember the she wolf comes last too, which is grounds for in itself. Fred mentioned that, that, um, that there are differences among critics, and there are some people think that the first level is here, that the she, no, that the leopard is here, the she wolf here. It's pretty. It's, it, to me, it's really obvious. There shouldn't be a dispute. The first level is the leopard. The second is the lion. And the last is the she-wolf. And remember, that Dante's description of the she-wolf is she's the most vicious. The she-wolf, if she has any meaning, is cunning. I mean, there's, there's a difference. Because the lion is far more violent. Um, and you reverse the order. So here you've got the leopard. Then you've got the lion. And the she-wolf, she... So she, the cunning, the the viciousness of the cunning, you know. So what happens here is that um, Dante sees he can't go up. Virgil comes and says, you have to go. To, that is, you have to learn to see each of these things in yourself. Now, at this point, I just want to put two things together. Because Dante right now is combining everything he learned from the Romans. He's an extraordinary man. Cicero and Aristotle um, and Thomas. And it's this. You know that the first level that Dante has to deal with are the sins of incontinence. In the middle level, he's going to deal with um, violence, and in the last, he's going to deal with fraud. What we have here in this division is this. And this is what's really important. Cicero said there are two kinds of bad behavior violence and fraud. Okay? Aristotle divided it into three kinds. Incontinence, bestiality, and malice. If you combine them, you get this. Incontinence above malice and fraud. Now the reason this is important is for this. 
you know if you've been reading that the hell is the, the city of Dece is here. In fact, Dante asks, why is incontinence outside? I, I, I hope we'll get to that in just a second because I'm about ready to stop here. Incontinence is outside the gates of Dece, the, the defining perimeter of hell, or the city of Dece. What's below it is malice and fraud. So what we're watching is this. The descent into hell um, here represents a descent into the worst part of man. That the lightest sins are the sins of incontinence. That is, those are the sins that we commit out of weakness. It's like a child wedding. If, if you have a weakness for drugs or sex or food, you know, those, those, those are acts of incontinence. So to think about it, remember the very first one that Dante encounters is lust. And then gluttony, right? And, and avarice things. Um, what he's showing us is that, that those are naturally good things. This is going to be turned upside down in the Purgatorio. Those are naturally good things. We have a, an attraction to them. But so often, in our anything that develops a weakness to them gives them a power over us that makes our actions uncontrollable. So what's going on in, in the level of incontinence is not like an act of sin. It's a weakness. You can't help yourself. The attachment's too strong. What happens to the will as you move down lower? An element of malice enters into it. That is, you want to do a willful harm to somebody. And stop and think about this. We start innocently. Sex, food, things, our comfort, we want these. But once they take hold of us, then we want them more. And then we, we put our wills into motion to get them. And that means doing something to somebody else to get them. So the descent into the soul is showing um, the nature of the human will in its movement towards sin. What starts as an incontinence, we just have a weakness for something, it, it encourages a malice, and then a fraud. We begin to use our minds to justify, explain away, minimize, excuse, um, and the violence gets worse and more grotesque. You can turn this upside down and say, there's an element, because remember, what's the defining quality of hell? Those who've lost the good of the intellect. And what do we see with Francisca at the very beginning? All the excuses. She blames God. She makes excuses for herself. She blames God. So there's an element of fraud in every, every sin. There's some element of malice, even if it's not seen. But, but allegorically, what Dante's showing us is that you enter into sin. Un remember, he crosses the river after un unconsciously he's asleep. We enter into sin unconsciously, we don't know it. What starts as a weakness begins to take on a life of its own. An element of malice is introduced to it, and finally fraud. And at the level of fraud, we see the horrible things that the intellect does. One last thing here. The word hell comes from the Anglo-Saxon helon. 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 Or the helion. It's Anglo-Saxon. Is that a B? 
This is B. Okay. This is this is a helon, behemion. And it means tied, concealed, like a hole. It's a dark place. It's a dark place. Here's what I love. Those of you who've done the Odyssey will love this, I think. The Greek word, the Greek word for hell, if the Anglo-Saxon helion or behelion means to hide, to hide, to conceal, because hell is the place in which we hide in our sins, we conceal it. Here, I mean, you know, you all of us know it. We go to confession to open up, to, to throw a light, because we hide ourselves and our sins from others. We don't, we don't want others to see them. So if that's what it means, to hide, to conceal, the Greek word for the same idea is Caliptane. Um From which, in the Greek world, from, from which we get what? From the Greek word, our world, Odysseus's world. Calypso. Calypso. What does Calypso mean? We went over this. What does Calypso do with Odysseus? She conceals him. She keeps him for herself. She hides him. In fact, she resents. She, remember we talked about the possessiveness of women? It's one of the qualities that Homer's making us aware of. Um, and from what else do we get? If calypti if means to conceal, right? I mean, it's calypso. Remember, she's the one who presents the greatest danger to Odysseus. She's got him for eight years. And he can't get off the island without the help of the gods. That's how powerful woman's attraction is to man. If we take that seriously, you know I do. Um, we talk about men abusing women all the time. We, we don't look at the way women abuse men in our culture, I'm sorry to say. I mean, there's this instinctive it's sort more of... Subtle. Huh? It's more subtle. Oh, absolutely. Not a question. What's the animal that Dante has to deal with the... <laughs> I mean, you can lose yourself over the years, right? <laughs> it, it's the she-wolf. Try that on for size. Anyway, here. Um, so, remember, Calypso hides Odysseus. What's the most important thing for a man in the heroic world, in, a, in Homer's world, in the Odysseus world? The virtue, Cleos, honor. What does honor mean? Coming out of the pack. Remember when the in the in the, when the war is taking place in Egypt, to come out of the pack, to show oneself, to risk being oneself. For Calypso to keep him there is to keep him from his Cleos, his manhood, to keep him to herself. Um, what other word do we get from Calyptane? Clip, yeah. If you put Apaco in front of that, what do you get? Apocalypse. What does Apocalypse mean? To come out. To reveal. To get out of the darkness. So hell is going into that dark world um, to hide. Virgil's taking Dante there so he can begin to learn to see himself because there's no hope of being free if he doesn't.
Okay. I want to just take two quick minutes. I know we're late. Do you guys have five more minutes? I'll tie this up. Um, let me stop. For, I know that's a lot, but all of this is really important. Any very, very brief questions? Because I want to. I want to look at a couple of examples to get us going. <laughs> then be still. <laughs> I don't, I don't think you saw this, some of you, but a minute ago when I was talking about um, Calypso as a woman and the possessiveness of women, and I, you know, we get a lot about male abuse, and, and Francis was going, <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> Fred was turning red the whole time. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Here, just very briefly, let's do this quickly, just to, to, to get us going to the book. Take a look on page 33. We've just left the love level of lustful, and you know how important the contrapasso is, yeah? We've gone through that, yes? Contrapasso? Mm -hmm. He's come to the level of gluttons, and they meet Cerberus with three heads. Why? Because obviously you can't get enough food. I mean, that's one of the images of gluttony. You just keep eating. You can't stop yourself. Um, and then he comes across this sinner, page 33. Oh, you there being led through this inferno, try to remember who I am, for you had life before I gave up mine. Dante can't recognize him. The pain you suffer here perhaps disfigures beyond all recognition. I can't remember seeing you before, but tell me, says, who you are. Your own city, he said, so filled with envy. What's the first defining mark of the city in the Commedia? Envy. The, the theme of the city is going to be, as I said, it's going to be a major motif of the entire work. Because you've got Florence is the ectype, the realized condition of the city on earth. What's the prototype of the city for all time? The New Jerusalem, right? In the apocalypse, the, the heavenly city. This is the ectype. And what defines it? How does it stand indifferent to that? Can envy have a part in the New Jerusalem? So one of the defining, the first defining mark of the earthly city, the ectype, the, the counterpart of is envy. Your own city so filled with envy, its cup already overflows. <laughs> What's that an allusion to? Eucharist? Mm -hmm. God giving himself? People in the earthly city taking all they want? Envy. Line these images up. I mean, just be, be aware. Dante is not using images lightly. They all mean. Once held me in the brighter life above, your citizens gave me the name of Chiaco. For my sin of gluttony, I am damned, as you can see, to rain and beats me weak. Chaco, I said to him, your grievous state weighs down on me. It makes me want to weep, but tell me what will happen. Now, okay, what's Dante's first response to the first two sinners he meets? Huh? Sympathy. Pity for Francisca, weeping for Chiaco. I don't want to get into this. How much in accord is he with God's law at this moment? Not. Okay. Pity is going to be one of the great things that Dante is going to have to deal with again and again and again in this thing. Um, weighs me down. It makes me want to weep, but
but tell me what will happen if you know to its citizens of that divided state. Now he, t he talks about the, the, the rivalries between the Gelfs and the Ghibellines. So he's already identifying the date by an actual event. Okay? I, I don't want to take time because I, I really want to get us in um, to this because we're late. Um, Dante's response before he leaves that, that circle is to, to wish more harm, which is a good thing for him, on page 35, but when you are more in the sweet world, I beg you to remind our friends of me. I speak no more, no more, I answer you. He twisted his straight gaze into a squint and stared a while at me, then bent his head, falling, falling to join his other sightless peers. My guide, he'll wake no more until the day of the angel's trumpet blows when the unfriendly judge will come down here. That is, at the, at the resurrection, judgment will be given. All of us will have our bodies returned. In that moment, what will happen? Page 36. Virgil, remember your philosophy. The closer a thing comes to its perfection, the more keen will be its pleasure or its pain. What will happen to Chiaco when he gets his body? Because it's a greater degree of perfection, his pain will increase. In, in a contrary way, in heaven, when the bodies return, the joys will infinitely increase. Okay. He crosses the, um, the next river, the Styx. Charybdis, page 37, comes. Um, oh, wait, sorry, sorry, this is not, this is the, this is the avaricious, I'm sorry. Um, here he finds two groups of people clashing rocks. They are the avaricious and the niggardly, the miserly and the spendthrifts, the people who waste and the people who hoard. And they're all, they're, they're in two groups, or on a half circle, or a circle, who keep smashing back and forth into each other. On page 38, were they all priests, these tonsured souls I see there to our left? Um, he said, in their first life, all you see here had such myopic minds that they could not judge with moderation when it came to spending. Their barking voices make this clear enough when they arrive at the two points on the circle where opposing guilts divide them into two, the ones who have bowed bald spots in their head were priests and popes and cardinal. This is the second circle, third circle, sorry. And it's a direct cr criticism of the corruptions in the church because of the inordinate wealth. Lots of people are poor. The priests and church officials, functionaries, are all wealthy, spoiled. The ones who have bald spots in their head were priests and popes and cardinals in whom avarice is most likely to preach. Flannery O'Connor once said, and I just believe her deeply, be careful of priests. I'm saying this really seriously too, I'm not joking. Be careful of priests. Um, they are often um, wolves in sheep's clothing. We, Flannery O'Connor, the American writer, um, Catholic, Catholic writer. Um, watch, look at the corruptions going on in our church. Look at the corruptions. How many, how many of those priests were encouraged, found it easier to do what they did because of the susceptibility of people to put so much trust in them as if priests would never do a wrong? And I, Master, in such a group as this, I should be able to recognize a few who dirty themselves by such crimes as these. Yours is an empty hope. These undistinguished life that made them foul now makes it hard to distinguish them. Why is it a, this is a contrapasso? Why is it appropriate that all of these people are faceless, identityless? Right? He could he could distinguish Francisca. He saw he knew Chiaco. 
as he watches these men do it, punishing each other, the source of punishment to avarice, I mean, wanting too much and hoarding too much, they're, they're defined by the same thing. Why is it appropriate for them to be faceless without an identity? Because they weren't what, they weren't what you thought they were. They were something else. So they really, what they projected wasn't what they really were. But that's true of everybody in hell. But, but I think it's also it's so important for them that they be identified as the priest and the one who had all this wealth and the one that had all this power and now so not having a face is a punishment because people wouldn't recognize them. Yeah. The other thing it, it makes me wonder um, I thought you were going to say something different when you started out that um, that because they wanted all this stuff more than anything else and they use people they took away the identities of people. They, they use people as objects that they themselves are now. They really are. I mean, they're just rocks beating each other. They, they define, from two different extremes, they define their lives by their attachment to wealth. They made of it a god. They took away the identity of other people. They used them as objects, and that's what people do. So it seems, I think, I, I may be wrong in this, I think that's what Dante is showing us here, that in some sense they lose their own identity, they become objects themselves. But take a look, last, this will be the last one and we'll stop. He comes to Filippo Argenti on page 42. Now they're in the, um, the, the river Styx. When Dante gets into the boat on page 42, the boat sinks. Phlegius, the boatman, recognizes it and he says, who are you coming before your time? Down at the bottom, who are you before? Why, why does he say that? Because Dante's got a body and the boat sinks. This is one of the comic elements of the, you know, everywhere he goes, there's an incongruity because he doesn't belong there. He's got a body and nobody else does. Um, at the bottom, though I come, I do not stay, but who are you and all your ugliness? You see that I'm the one who leaps. Now, as Dante was crossing the sticks, remember, he saw bubbles coming up from the surface. And what he says is those bubbles are the words of the people below expressing their misery. What he's facing here is sullen anger. It's buried. It's not on the surface. It's buried. It's sullen. It, it's immersed in itself. Um, and Dante's met this one soul, Argent, um, Filippo Argentini, at the top of the next page, 43. Then I said, may you weep and wail... Now, listen to the language. May you weep and wail. Stuck here in this place forever, you damned soul. For filthy as you are, I recognize you. With that, he, he stretched out both hands towards the boat, but on his guard, my teacher pushed him back. Away, get down there with the other curves. Then he put his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, Indignant soul, blessed is she whose womb you were conceived. Now, Dante just said, May you weep and wail. Stuck here in this place, you damned soul. For filthy... And it's at this moment that Virgil praises him, first time. And she uses the word that are a, a parallel to what? Indignance. Blessed is she whose womb you were in, whose womb, in whose womb you were conceived. What's that an allusion to? Who was conceived in Mary's womb? What's going on in this moment, allegorically? Why does Virgil praise him? He kisses Dante. I think allegoric. It's a moment. What was his response to the first two sin? Sympathy, pity, weeping, mm -hmm. and now he says, "May you weep." Mm -hmm. He's indignant and angry, and Virgil says, 
Blessed is she in whose womb you work. It's, it, it's a serious question for me whether at this moment we're not to feel that Christ is awakening him and he's responding differently to evil. It's not pity, it's indignation saying, get away. And we see allegorically the embodiment of that when Virgil pushes our Jenny away. This is where they come to the city of Dece and um, it's at this point that Dante and Virgil are going to sit down and they're going to lay out hell and they're going to have this talk with uh, Farinata and Cavacante. But we'll pick that. We'll pick up these lovely scenes after Christmas. Let me stop for a second. Any question? Let's stop here. And um, But any questions before we leave? You, you all understand the allegorical method that we're asked, the contrapasso, that what's going on on every level is... <laughs> is asking us to read more carefully that there are multiple levels of meaning and we have to put them together to see what's really going on. And at this point, it seems that Dante is wising up a little bit, that he's, he's just not feeling sorry for people suffering. He's beginning to see that it's necessary because there's in these people, he's seen individuals turning from God, blaming him, hurting others at this point an indignation is wakening in him and Virgil praises him and indirectly relates him to Christ even though Virgil doesn't know Christ the way Dante does okay <laughs> what did, go ahead I, I just, there's kind of a contrast there right I mean you have Dante the Pope who actually wrote the words right Put all these people in their proper places to hell, and you have Dante, the pilgrim, who's going through that experience to ultimately yeah. become Dante the poet. Yeah, kind of like Ishmael. Exactly. Do you want to add anything to that, Fred? I mean, that's, no, that's just, 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 just a big thing. Just kind of go along with it. I think that the next thing after this one, he even gets more aggressive against sin when he meets, you know, his competitor. Uh, in uh, uh, Florence. You know, the next, I, I think it's, it's the next chapter. Uh, well, I, no, I can't remember the guy's name at the moment, but it was, they, they were political opposites. Farinata. Farinata, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, just a note on what Fred said. Hold on, Fred, because this is really, I'm glad, you all know that there are two Dantes here. Hold on, there are two Dantes. The, the, we're, we're getting Dante the journey, or like Ishmael, who's going through this journey. We wouldn't have it except that he already went through that. He's already done it. He's coming back to write it. So what's interesting here is that we're being given the perspective. No, no, let me There's a perspective of distance implied in the whole work because we're getting the story of Dante as he experienced it, but it's from the point of view of the Dante who's already completed the journey who's looking at it. So there's a perspective of distance. He can see things as a storyteller, presumably aware of some things that he wasn't fully aware of when he was going through it. Um, so keep that in mind. There, there are two Dantes. And, and more importantly, be aware that there's this distancing perspective, that he's stepping outside. He has stepped outside of himself to describe the Dante that had been you know, going through this thing. It's, it's part of the irony. of It's an element of irony for the whole story. You all have a good Advent, okay, and a really good Christmas. Um, if you if you would all keep Suzanne 
keep Suzanne and me and our kids in your prayers, we'd be grateful. If I were, Francis, before you go, if I were your family for Christmas, I'd get you a violin. <laughs> Just one other thing. God, I love that. Just a picture of that along that same line. You know, when, when Dante's talking to the shades and, and they, you know, start talking to him about the future. Right. To Dante the Pilgrim. Right. And, and that he's going to be in exile. And he comes up like three times. Right. Or the course yeah. Of yeah. And, he, and he asks the shade, well, how do, you, how do you know this? And he says, well, I can see in the past. I can see in the future, but we can't see the present. And so when I look at Dante the poet, describing the process of Dante the Pilgrim, he's actually presenting the present, or unveiling the present, as, as he goes through. And while he's in it. While he's in it, yeah. 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 So it's just, there's just a lot of, yes, a lot of undercurrent yeah. in all of this that you have to kind of and, get down and, and the way you're putting it, and a lot of different time dimensions that conflate I mean, time and past and future. Think about Elliot. Well, I actually think about quantum gravity, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> in the space time continuum. Remember in the Cortez, time present, time future, and, and um, not oh, that, that's exactly. He, all of the, he got all of this from Dante. The other thing to keep, I mean, I, I shouldn't say it because it, it's ahead, but you're here talking. But one of the interesting things about that that I'll bring up then is Dante's puzzled why, why they can see the future. Because Calvacondi says, what about the sun? And Dante uses past and Calvacondi doesn't know whether he's alive. And Dante asks Fernando, how can you see the past and future and not the present? I'm not going to say. I'm going to wait. All right. Because I, I think that has to do with a contrapasso. Yeah, I think so. If you're, if, you're, if, an, if you're an Epicurean and you deny the soul, Fernando does. If you're an Epicurean and deny the soul, what you're saying is the present moment is more important than anything else. That's all there is, this present moment. Why would that be an appropriate contrapasso? For me, it is. I mean, the present will forever be taken away from you. I mean, at least that's which, my sense. Which, which is kind of the literal aspect, right? Just. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just and it's don't, food for another dinner. Yeah, right, right. Good. Be glad for that. If just, I don't know that you'll ever go back to Eliot, Fred, but if you ever do, read Eliot when after you read Dante. It just the the, the poem won't read the same way. Yeah. Um, a long time ago, I read this thing about Luther, and I don't remember where it was or whatever, but it. it is that he was never really, ha he was unhappy, he was disappointed because no matter how much he prayed, uh, all the things he did, he'd sleep on the floor at night, he like, he flogged himself, right. that he never felt he could commune with God, that God never favored him, so, something like mm -hmm. that. Do you think that, if in fact that was true what I read, do you think that this deep-seated anger within the Catholic Church took him to want to destroy the church, and, and not that the, the, the things that the, ch the church was doing wrong didn't stand on its own to be rectified, but I wonder if, if he'd have been happy and hadn't looked at the church as being, if he felt like he was 
communing with God and everything was good, I wonder if he'd have been as as direct about going after the church. And I mean, there's no answer to that. But I, I, I got the feeling I got from him is that he was very unhappy. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Oh, you... oh no, no, I'll keep the plate. You take the... You take the uh... Thanks. <laughs> you said... The way you put it a minute ago was... I can't... God, was that the, the, the anger within the church that he was... No, the anger... He was unhappy. Right. With no matter what he did. But a minute ago you said the anger the anger of the church as if he was responding to the ang- the church's anger. Yeah. But I don't know if you no, meant No, I didn't mean that. The no. anger in himself. In himself. I, right. I wonder if that was a compelling force. I'm sure. I'm sure. My my response to your question is that what I know of Luther is what you're describing that mm-hmm. it was true. Mm-hmm. He was, there was a violent side to him, and a really proud, arrogant. And and my sense, I mean, I I, I think I was wondering about what you meant when you used the word the anger of the church. My sense is that we all know this that, there, that very often people within the church can become overly scrupulous, yeah, just way scrupulous. Oh yeah. And I think my sense of Luther is that was true for him that he was so scrupulous that he was so upset at corruption. I'm sorry. That he didn't bring a love. It's like a Jewish fastidiousness. Sure, yeah. What yeah. it did was deepen the anger. Okay. It made him. Just what you're describing. How well he talked with God. You know, that, that there was this scrupulosity, this anger, this bitterness. Um, it was what so much of what he did didn't come out of a love. That's it. That's um, a better way to put it. Yeah. It's just it, these other things that were this fastidious in, intellect where. He was I'll get even with you. The wrongs were there. Yeah, the wrongs were there. Um, but I'm just wondering if, if, if the, he didn't the catalyst to form... Yeah. yeah. So I would say from his own pride that it was just so... An arrogant, irritable man. Okay. And blaming real faults in the church. But instead of standing with them in a greater spirit of love or forgiveness or patience or yeah. or using reason in a better way that would have addressed those faults in a yes, better way yes. he didn't he, he did didn't. it he went after them and in, in a way that was destructive that would he wanted the orders destroyed he wanted the church destroyed yep that's a that's just a violent temper yep okay i i, I somewhat felt that just thought i'd run that by yeah how are you enjoying Dante? Are oh, you? Oh, it's great. Yeah? It's taking me back years ago when I was in school, and they were talking about Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire and all that kind of stuff.